Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Eddie Revis, CMO of Magnolia Bakery. Formerly VP of Brand Marketing and Media at Chobani, Eddie has been named a 2021 CMO to Watch by Business Insider and a 40 Under 40 by Brand Innovators. Quoting his LinkedIn profile, because I thought this was funny, Eddie is resident troublemaker, inclusion advocate, doer, brand builder, and teacher. And he's on a mission to show the world CPG marketing doesn't have to suck. (laughs) What a great intro. Welcome, Eddie. (laughs) Thanks for having me. I really liked, I just didn't even, I didn't even need to get a bio from you because I thought your LinkedIn profile was perfect. So I was like, I'm just going to put that in. Um, I do joke. It's my favorite social networking site. (laughs) By the way, it's totally my favorite. So I have more friends on LinkedIn than I do in real life. Hands oh, down. E- easily. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like, I feel very connected to people, and I'm not on any other social network. Yeah, it's a, it's a very it's a safe, um, fun space to be. And you know what <laughs> I love about it? I have to say, I love that it says, "What are you thinking about today?" Or you know, it's just like, "What do you want to write about today?" Or it's, the prompt is like, "What am I thinking about today? <laughs> what do I want to say today?" Like, I really, I always am like, "Huh." Thanks, LinkedIn. Um, I think that, you know, they're trying yeah. to be more, more inclusive and um, open, I think, about, you know, how world the world's changed with working and what people are thinking about. And I, lo- yeah. I love I love seeing the good posts on LinkedIn. It's yes. really, really fun. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, this is not sponsored by LinkedIn, but if LinkedIn wants to sponsor my podcast, you know where to reach me. Um, anyway, welcome, Eddie. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Um, So we met and I kind of felt like it was a love affair in some ways um, when Haven's Kitchen was in the Chobani incubator way back in 2018. You came to talk to us about, you know, everything. Um, And I have to say back when we were in the incubator, I think I understood about like 13% of what you were talking about. I had no clue. Um, And I still kind of don't. And that's why I'm really happy that you're here. But, you know, I only know you from Chobani. You know, I know you were there for four years, but I know you've had like a very storied kind of career over the past several years. So tell me a little bit about how you came to Magnolia. And, you know, if you had to sort of sum up your career in like big learnings since you are a teacher. Um, I'd love those. Yeah, definitely. So I am a teacher (laughs) for better or for worse, I think. For better. And yeah, I, you know, I have a couple of ways I talk about my career and its evolution. And I think the easiest way to describe my career and the journey I've been on, even getting to Magnolia is I usually take the jobs that people are afraid of and I usually take the jobs that don't have a job description written mm-hmm. quite yet. <laughs> yeah. And and I and you know, I, that's not the same for everybody out there that's working and that is pursuing a career professionally in marketing and, and in branding and, and brand building. But you know, my I've been fortunate enough to work at some amazing companies and agencies that span traditional brand building, C-suite consulting, design, global media. And I kind of built this little toolbox up um, mm-hmm. uh, of all these skills and, and all these different approaches and frameworks and, and ways to think about solving problems. And when I when I finally made it to Magnolia, I said, oh, my goodness, I have the job here that one, the job description didn't exist. Right. <laughs> Two, it was a brand new job for the company. So I said, sign me up. I don't even need to think about it anymore. Yeah, it's amazing. And, but I felt safe in that because I, I had the opportunity to work at so many amazing companies like Chobani and, and companies before it, where 
I was able to build this toolkit up and I was able to, uh, to go into my toolbox with different problems. And I actually was just talking to a former student of mine around some, you know, she asked me big takeaways and, and things that, that I thought I valued throughout my career. And I said, there's three, there's three things that I always mm-hmm. go back to. Um, and it's because I've met, I've been in this diversity of a career path. I've been in this, in this amazing sort of universe of, of awesome leaders and teachers, but I, I've always said one, you, you've got to remember that you are who you run with. Mm-hmm. And that's really important when you're building teams. It's really important when you're joining a team yeah. that you don't have to like everyone you work with. You don't have to be best friends with them, but you gotta want to run with them. Yeah. Because when you're looking at that goalpost that is constantly moving and constantly changing, um, the worst thing you can do is look around and be like, I don't like any of these. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, and too often, I think people forget that, um, yep. especially in this world where everyone's working remote and you're sort of yeah connected, but disconnected from your, from your peers. Um, I told, you know, I told this former student, I said, look, you, you've got to remember you are who you are, who you run with. That's awesome. Um, and that's, and so that, that's that I, sorry to interrupt you, but I feel like I might've just, I feel like this whole thing is like, I never ran track clearly, but you know, you know, the thing where like they hand the thing off to the next person. It's a relay, it's a relay race. It's a giant right. relay race. Right, yeah. exactly. And like, you got to be kind of in sync for those couple steps and you have to have your arm in the right place and you have to trust that the person is going to take the baton and you have to trust someone's going to give you the baton or whatever it's called, the stick. And I feel like that is the metaphor for everything that we do in this CPG emerging brand space where you can't, you, you just, you can't hold every ball. So you have to know that the people around you are going to catch balls that you're going to throw. And you have to know that you can hold them accountable and that you have to trust that they're going to hold you accountable when you drop a ball. And like you said, that doesn't necessarily mean you want to like go to the movies with them every day, but there does have to be this sort of level of like, I'm trusting that you and I are going to be teammates together. Essentially. Yep. Right. Okay. Great. Yeah. It's, it's exactly that. Yeah. And it's so, you know, you are who you run with is a huge takeaway from my career. Cause I've, you know, I've worked in places where I necessarily like didn't feel like I was mm-hmm. on a team yeah. um, or I was a teammate. And, and when you have one of those experiences or two of those experiences, you really start to realize what you do want and also what you really don't want. I think also, I mean, I'm, we're going to be on number one for another minute here because it's, I, that's what I'm scared of with hiring also. Oh, you know, yeah. I think for the founders, like we convince ourselves, we need this job filled. We need someone who's got experience or we need someone who like, we can just like hand this off to or whatever it is. But if they are not a team player, especially in these emerging brands and, and the early stages where to your point about job descriptions, we might have job descriptions, but then there's this big the final bullet is like, and also, by the way, there might be a lot of things that are not in the job description that you're going to be expected or asked to do. And that just has to be part of your like, you know, sort of what Swiss army knife of a, of a job, you know? Um, it's, a, it's all yeah. about the career. It's all about expectations too. I mean, yeah. we just, we've been fortunate enough. We just hired uh, someone out of the team here and we, we took her away from a pretty big global company. And I had her meet me in person and I said, we're going to have a face-to-face eye-to-eye conversation. And I want to make sure that you are ready for what you're about to jump into because Mm -hmm. the company you've been working for has been around for a hundred years. Yep. We've essentially here been around for a year in the the new world we're building. Right. Fun. And so that means your job is going to change every six months. That means we are going to tackle challenges that I can't even expect you to understand or what even I can understand yet. And yeah. I said, are you, are you ready for that? And, you know, of course she was, she accepted. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a huge, it's a huge risk and a huge anxiety. I know of founders and, and people building companies that, yeah. you know, your team, your team has to be your team yeah. and it's the only way you're going to be successful. And I think that, that idea of you are who you run with, yeah. um, it really ties in. I would say like, you are who you eat chilies with in the Minnesota airport. Um, <laughs> can I sit with you and eat chilies with you and have right. a margarita um, and get stuck in a snow delay for three hours? Absolutely. Yep. Amazing. Um, so that, that's one big takeaway. I think, you know, awesome. the other big takeaway that, um, that I've, that I've always led by and that I now hire a lot of people by, and no one's proven me wrong yet in terms of who I've hired, but um, I want to be a hundred percent confident in 80% of the information that I have to be able to make a decision. 
And the takeaway is I don't ever want to wait to be 100%, have 100% of the information and be 80% confident in it. Um, And I think in building companies and building new organizations and building new teams and building new business units and expanding growth and, and finding, you know, finding dollars that are, that are easy to grab and finding Mm -hmm. dollars that are hard to grab. There comes a point where you have to look at the information that you have and say, I'm a hundred percent confident in what I do know, and I'm going to move on it versus there's a lot of companies and a lot of people out there that don't have that, that intuition, that jump Mm -hmm. to say, okay, you only have 70% of the information. Are you ready to go? Right. Most people would say, no, I don't know everything yet. I need to know everything. Right. And then I say, well, you'll never know everything. Now what right. do you do? Right. <laughs> Where and then do you it go becomes analysis paralysis, you know, yes. there's like too oh much gosh. information yes. and it's not working in the same way. Yeah. Okay. And then, um, three. and then number three is um, Peter McGinnis taught me this, um, who I know, you know, uh, yeah. but it was uh, allow yourself to be data informed, not data driven. Yeah. And it doesn't necessarily just have to do with the numbers. It doesn't have to do with, um, with the piece of paper or the chart or the Excel that you're looking at. But I feel like that really actually speaks to a philosophy. It speaks to an approach. It speaks to, you know, there might be a, there might be a way that you're supposed to do things. And then there's a way that your gut is telling you to do it. Go with the gut. Yeah. (laughs) And and let, let the process kind of keep you in your lane and keep you in check. But um, I remember the first time I heard him say that, I was like, that is so simple. So so smart. (laughs) Yeah. And it's stuck with me ever since, even as I've come to Magnolia, because at Magnolia Baker, you know, we're, we're not a small company, we're not a huge company, right? we don't have all the information in front of us. We don't have all the data. We don't have all the answers. And so when we're making decisions, we have to allow ourselves to be informed by what's going on, but not be driven by it. Right. No, um, it's great. You know, if you did that, you're in, a, you're in a constant sort of hamster wheel of decision making. Well, and I think also, again, like I'm really at this crossroads. I think people who are listening to the podcast who've been like following, I mean, again, I started the podcast when we were three months old and I asked Derek Quant, who was the, you know, director of operations at Bonza, literally, so Derek, what is operations? Literally, like I had no clue what I was even asking at that point. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm sure some of the conversations I've had over the last three and a half years, like I still don't know, but, you know, I think we're at this place right now where I feel like we kind of need to quote unquote professionalize or bring quote unquote grownups into the room or, you know, I feel like Chris Farley, but you know, like we have to, <laughs> you know, we've gotten this far, um, with a lot of scrappy people making really good intuitive decisions, everything from like what flavor to make next, which is completely not data driven in any way, but just like, I really like X. Um, I mean, a little more sophisticated than that, but not really, <laughs> not really, you know, to even just, you know, so now we're kind of like, all right, we have these functions and we need to bring in people who have experience with these functions. And you and I have talked about this, you know, yep. with marketing and yet we're also, we need, we need those people also to be like what you were saying, super flexible with a really scrappy startup culture where they, they, you know, it's not like, here's your budget go, you know, it's like, how do we even make a budget for this? You know, which goes back to questions I have for you. Um, <laughs> Let's so get in terms of the teaching, so you teach things like thinking strategically and account planning boot camp, and, you know, what I'm assuming that is the toolkit. So tell me when you think about your toolkit and when you think about these classes, like, you know, what are the things that you're, how do you, before you even start, like, what would the syllabus be? I guess is the question. Syllabus is intense. (laughs) And not even the books, like not even like, what are you reading, but how are you even categorizing the syllabus? Like what are the themes, you know? So I'm a little bit of an unorthodox professor. I can um, imagine. As you can imagine. Yeah. Uh, I use no textbooks. Right. I use real world application. Yeah. So because my students um, historically have been either going into a second career or perhaps they were at a university or college and they decided I want to be in the creative discipline. I teach all the creative. So I teach these highly conceptual, very interesting, dynamic group of students 
um, who don't have a lot of discipline. Right. <laughs> it's the best way to put it. Right. So classes like thinking strategically in account family bootcamp, it's not so much a syllabi that I'm teaching in either of those classes, but it's really at the core of it, it's about critical thinking um, and how to empower hyper creative, very interesting, very thoughtful, very intentional uh, human beings to allow themselves to do that even better. Right. Or do that like even harnessing in a creativity. Way. Yes. What was that? There's creativity. a quote. There's a quote like creativity with boundaries or constraint. something like that. Constraints. Yeah. Creativity loves constraints. Yeah. yeah. That's sort of, you got to put my syllabus on a piece of paper, or like in, in words, it'd be creativity loves constraints. I'm the same way. I'm super creative and I can come up with a thousand ideas, but what happens after you have those thousands of ideas? Right. You sit there and you're like, what do I do? I just overwhelm myself. So my syllabus and, and what I teach is really founded on sort of the five phases of critical thinking. Yeah, um, right. Especially within the creative discipline. So it's one, understanding observation. Can you actually notice and predict solutions, opportunities, and scenarios? So we do a lot of scenario planning. We do a lot of forecasting of, of briefs and ideas of, okay, if, if uh, Haven's Kitchen is going to launch X sauce, what could happen? What could right. it look like? Where would it go? Okay, now imagine that doesn't happen. Now imagine this scenario. And it's rapid sort of in that in that sequential Ooh, sort of thinking. That sounds fun. Yeah. The second one is analysis. So now that you observe the world and, you know, I would send my students out to like, you know, we worked on a Panera brief launch. And I was like, okay, you're all going to go sit at a Panera and you're going to observe and just notice and see how people interact and use and talk and think and do. But that's not good enough, right? You also have to do the analysis. And so mm -hmm. I teach a lot on understanding and interpreting information, whether qualitative or quantitative, to then help inform, again, the ultimate decision you're going to make. Um, and that's where it's sort of the phase three of the syllabus comes in. It's around inference. It's around drawing those indirect conclusions between information, personal knowledge, and the experience. This is usually when the kids get really excited. Yeah. Kids, they're in, I mean, they're in their 20s. They're not that young. Right. Yeah, <laughs> um, well, yeah. this, is, uh, this is where they get really excited because then they start to say, oh, because of my experience of growing up in another culture or growing up in another country and what I observed and what I was able to think about, that actually is going to inform my point of view right? and how I'm going to approach this problem. And you start to see like sort of light bulbs quick, click around mm -hmm. this week. It's usually it's like week four, week five of 10. Mm -hmm. I harp on communication. Yeah. <laughs> I say, if it's important, you got to write it down. Um, yeah. I tell my, I tell my teams this, I teach my teams this all the time. Um, when you Do get you certified have a to be preferred a way to, sorry to interrupt you because I'm yeah. thinking like, like, is there a, pref did you kind of come in to your role at Magnolia and be like, okay, we're going on Slack and these are the channels and this is how we're communicating or like at the top of every email, this is how you get da 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 da. Like in terms of that, like what, what are you, the sort way of. that people communicate? I, I mean, did bring Slack to the organization, which is very helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but no, I, more so in, in the concept of teaching and, you know, you learn this as you go through a certification to be a teacher in the, in the state of New York is there's seven types of learners in the world. There's people that are auditory. There are people that are visual and spatial. There are people that are verbal there are people that are more logical. There are people right. that are more kinesthetic or physical. There's intrapersonal learners and there's solitary or intrapersonal learners. And so all of these people, just like a team at your company or just like a yeah. team that you're working with, all of those types of people exist in one melting pot of a group. Yeah. And so in this class, what I teach the creatives is look to be influential, to have influence about your ideas, to sell your ideas, to get people to buy into it. You might need to pay attention to how you communicate. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's a presentation. Maybe it's a walk. Maybe it's allowing the person to absorb the idea themselves and how they want to learn it and interpret it. And so in terms of communication, it's not just here's how to build a slide or here's right. how to send a Slack or write an email. It says it's the critical thinking behind that to say, like, who am I talking to? What do I want to influence with them? What am I going to try to get them to do? And then how best do they learn or absorb information so that I can meet them where they're at? Which, of course, so it's a bit of like, like you know, the, the empathetic. Yeah, <laughs> it's, right. it's the marketer, me. Right. Um, so we teach them that. And then, you know, of course, the, the big last piece that they always get really excited for is like once they've learned how to communicate and once they've learned how to do all this, um, actually solving the problem. So right. coming up with those creative ideas, taking all the information, identifying and troubleshooting and creating solutions. Um, and it's a, it's a really great journey that they go on. And then I, I, why I do it, I do a practical class. So I do one assignment every week or one sort of intensive assignment every week. And by week 10, I actually have them go back to their first week presentation. Mm. <laughs> and I say, now critique yourself. Wow. Right. Oh, now, I'm now, now, class. 
it's, it's a fun class. I would imagine. Um, yeah. It's intensive. I mean, I've, I've had tears. I've had, yeah. you know, the 1230 AM sitting at the school, helping a group figure out how right. to be in a group together and work with different personalities. Like it's, you know, a lot of respect for my teachers growing up yeah. um, by doing this. But I think, yeah, that's one of the really big, big focuses is I want to prepare them for their next three jobs. I want to prepare them for their career. So it's not a theoretical class in the sense of like, learn this information, you may or may not use it. It is, I'm coming from the industry. I know what you need to be focused on. I know how to help you. I know how you can be persistent. I know how you need to be flexible. I know how you need to be collaborative. Let me design coursework and classes and work that you will uh, practically apply. And I mean, my students have used their work in portfolios to get jobs. They've used it to pitch out uh, to the companies that we've worked for. It's been, it's been a really rewarding like seven years. No, it's incredible. I mean, honestly, you know what I love about, and it's funny because I had a guest on a couple of weeks ago and he teaches a class at Stanford and, you know, I taught at NYU and I consider myself like, you know, that game where you like write, write seven things about yourself. And then like you go around and you take one away every time. And then you end up with like one thing, which is like Mm -hmm. who you are at the core. And I really do like, it always comes to teacher for me. And I think the reason why I love what you just said, and I love teachers in general, and I love school quote unquote in general, is that everything you just said that you're teaching your creatives about a marketing career is basically you're teaching them life skills, right? Debbie Millman had that class on like design, but it wasn't just about design. It was, it was about life, right? Because all of these things, et cetera, like, how am I communicating? What am I trying to say? What am I trying to affect here? What is the problem that I'm trying to solve? Basically, you're just like this little game piece going around the board, trying to like manage your high points with like humility and and learning what went right. And then manage your low points by like not getting stuck and figuring out how to like take the loss and move on, mm-hmm. you know? And, and also that, how to manage, manage the, 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 the infrequency of anything. Right. Yeah. When it's quiet and when nothing's going on, good or bad, how do you motivate yourself to to hunt for the brief and look for the idea and solve the problem that you can't see? Because I think too often I tell my, you know, I tell my teams a lot of time, like your job is to go find the brief. Don't wait for it. Yeah. Um, And to find the brief, you've got to be constantly thinking, looking for problems, observing, doing all those things that we just talked about. So it's, um, yeah, I think, you know, the teacher thing is really important because, when I, when I look at the feedback I've been given throughout my career, especially when I started managing teams yeah. and managing people, I'm definitely in the teacher persona. I have really, you know, I have higher expectations than I probably need to, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think it, it sets a certain expectation with the, with the learner or with the student or the team member. Um, but I would say, I think that being a teacher and being in a teaching environment for so long is what has differentiated me throughout my career yeah. as a team manager and a team builder. Yeah. Because as you know, teaching, yeah, there's a certain level of empathy you have to approach every problem with. There's a certain level of humanity that yeah. you have to approach every problem with. And when you pair that with the work and you pair that with work culture, yeah, you really surprise people. Yeah. When you're able to stop and you say, Hey, like this isn't about the work, is it about the work? Something right. else is going on. Let's talk about it. Right. That those are the moments when I think about when did I break through and when did I as a as when I was building teams and managing teams, when did I create that momentum that just felt unstoppable? Yeah. It was when I was more of a teacher than a, you know, textbooks. Cause you know, I mean, you know me, I'm not yeah. a textbook manager. No, no, I hear, I mean, no, I mean, I'm, listen, um, I feel the same way. I guess, I guess before we go to the break and before we get into like marketing, I, that did mm-hmm. make me, so I've also, if, if anyone's been listening, I've had a little bit of like a confidence crisis in the last couple of months about this hiring phase. And, you know, I, I think in general, you know, I, I, I feel similarly, I think I'm, I'm, I'm good at giving context. I'm good at attaching a why. If I'm asking you to do something and you're on my team, you know how it's going to affect the business and you know why it's, it's not just me feeling like, oh, I want you to do this today. You know, like there, I feel like I'm a good manager in that sense. Mm-hmm. What I've had a little bit of a confidence crisis around is like my hiring instincts. And I mean, there's good reason for that. We had a little bit of a blip, um, which we will not talk about. Um, but, you know, I hired, 
I thought with discipline and it wasn't a good fit and it cost the company time and money and momentum and emotional crap. And, um, I don't, I'm like, now I'm gun shy a little bit. And, Mm. you know, have you had that happen to you and what did you do? And it sounds like you feel very good about your hiring ability and you know what to look for, but what do you do when, you know, has it ever gone pear-shaped and what do you do? Oh, it's, it's gone that way either with teams I've adopted, especially, um, you know, team members that've come on board that just maybe didn't fit the flow or the vibe that, that I was trying to build. And also with hiring people, I think, listen, it's, you know, you, you have to believe and you know that you're a great hiring manager and there's this, you know, there's this age old saying, fake it till you make it. Right. If you allow self-doubt and you allow um, something to break the resilience as a founder and someone that, you know, as you built this company and you're able to come look at that, hiring one person, yes, costs money, costs time, costs energy, emotional, the dynamic shift, everything changes. It can be a really rocky boat. My advice and how I always have approached it is remember who you are and what you've done to get to that point and realize that this one small blip is not going to drastically change the trajectory of the success you've already built. Right. And by yeah, we're going to do a much better onboarding. Yeah. 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 Identify the triggers and identify the, the, you know, once you know the why, if the why is like, Hey, maybe onboarding wasn't great for that person realize, Hey, as I'm growing this awesome company and I'm bringing all these kick-ass team members on board, I'm going to start to hire dynamic people that are want to be onboarded in different ways. Right. Good learning, bring it on to the next one. Um, but I think yeah. it's it's it really comes from within to say you've got to trust your instincts because it's gotten to where you are now. Yeah. And hiring is so delicate because it's a two way street. Yeah. It's not just you know you're not going to find you know I've I've found plenty of people that I've hired that are like I want to switch teams and I'm like okay what can I do to help you do that right <laughs> this isn't for you what can I do to help right. you do that because right. I I want I don't want to diminish their confidence in themselves even right. if it's not working out yeah um I don't want to diminish the energy of the team around me or the aura of the team around me by being like oh Eddie's stressed out we mm-hmm. hired a bad apple right I'll say you know what hiring bad apples sometimes it happens let me show you what to do with it confidently to move them out yeah, <laughs> yeah. to get them out and yep. so it, it really it you know there's no textbook solution formula that you can plug into how you how you um avoid that it will always be there because it's a two-way street it's just again control what you can control and if you can control the onboarding process and you can control your attitude and your energy of the team yeah if the one thing you can't control is someone had a poor experience and decided to leave before their time was up before you wanted them to yeah so be it yeah control the other 90 percent. yeah all right good advice All right, we're going to take a break and then we come back, we're going to talk about marketing because that's what we do. So excited. (laughs) Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, The working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. I'm back with Eddie Revis, uh, CMO of Magnolia Bakery. Um, Okay, so that was an amazing sort of start. We talked about things I, now my heart is a little like full um, which is great because now we have to get into marketing and, you know, I feel like one of the things about you is that you do have this toolkit and you have been exposed into all of the different channels and everything from brick and mortar marketing to partnerships, to media planning, shopper marketing for like trade spend and ad buying and product launches and content. And, you know, there is so much 
um, under this like umbrella of marketing. And I feel like one thing that has become a little bit, it's like risen to the top a little bit in my brain over the last couple of months is that, you know, we have, you know, for the three years of Havens, we've been thinking of marketing really as like brand awareness. Like we're just trying, you know, we just, our job was to get people outside of people who came to the cooking school to know what our brand was and what it stood for. And I think we've done a pretty good job at that, especially, and I just want to shout out to Courtney because that's been her whole life for the last three years. Um, And now as we get into more grocery stores and we're sort of on a bigger, you know, now we're on a national scale a little bit, like, you know, to use that analogy, like we're on like the middle school team, not the sixth grade team anymore. Like, I feel like there's this whole other world of marketing that has to do with like numbers and data and channel spend and stuff like that, that I don't even, I don't even know. Um, what, what it is that I don't know. So, you know, this is like me going back to like, so what is operations? But like, honestly, like Eddie- Don't ask me what marketing is. Please don't I, ask me what I'm not going to ask you what marketing is, but I do, I would love to know, like, how do you map it out? If you were going to draw a picture of the marketing of an organization or an early stage CPG brand, how would you draw it? Like what, I'm a visual, right, learner. Mm-hmm. So like, what what would it look like? Is it a circle? Is it a line? Is it a, like, and, and what are those different things? How would you think of it? Uh, yeah. How much time do we have? <laughs> I'll, I'll keep this brief. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a really, it's the million dollar question. $2 million question, $3 million question. Maybe possibly How, a $300 million question possibly, if we get it right. right. Now, listen, I've, I've been doing marketing for some time, not a long time, but some time. And no one knows the answer to that question. And I say that because people that tell you, they say this they is a warning, people you're hiring, this is a good warning. If people tell you they know the answer to that, they're lying. <laughs> because I, how I approach it, and like it's not a visual map quite yet, but we'll get there is one, I first have to accept that marketing is not a silver bullet for a company, whether mm-hmm. it is a on-shelf CPG, whether it's a direct-to-consumer, whether it's a legacy 200-year-old brand, right. marketing is not the silver bullet to solve the problems. Marketing as a function, marketing as a team, marketing as an investment should be used and deployed strategically to help the outcomes that the company has that they want to see happen. And so... That's the first conversation before I map anything out. I would say, what is, what is the outcome that you want? Right. And by focusing on outcome-based planning, especially when it comes to how you deploy marketing resources, people, time, money, whatever it might be, um, all those pieces, that toolbox, all those, all those activations and levers Mm -hmm. that you can pull all suddenly fall into place. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Everything can be an outcome-based. Yeah. Everything can be outcome-based. So if you said, Hey, we're launching you know, my first, my big priority for the second half of this year is I want to own holiday cooking and recipes. Okay. There's a few things that have to happen there. Run, right? Like one, your operations and product team have to be able to supply the inventory and have the ready for the demand that might be coming mm-hmm. in if it's your peak season. But from a marketing perspective, I'd say, okay, great. Let's write that outcome down. Now let's decide all the levers and channels and investments and things that we can pull to get us to do that based yeah. on what you have available at your, at, at your company and what you do. Yeah. And so outcome-based marketing planning is my bread and butter. That's, is what I, love that, to do. I, I feel like we could hang up now. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. And I'll be back next week with another episode of In the Sauce. Honestly, like that's um, everything because you just completely shifted the map from my brain from all these things it, to now, one. now it's reshuffled. It's just one, one. And, you guys, and then they all plug outcomes. into that thing. Yep, yep. You have a lot yep. of outcomes, but if, if here, here's where here's where marketing also becomes a sacrifice. And you have to be so good. You have to be. I would say I would argue this personally. You have to be good enough marketing to not just know what to do, but what not to do. Mm-hmm. And so, if you, Ali, would say, okay, I want to own holiday holidays in Q4 and own recipe, and and you know we debate what that means, and it's about product usage or about velocity or trial or 
or just awareness. Great. So when I tell you that I'm not going to focus on the Instagram plan because your reach is really low and your organic following is really low and Mm -hmm. we're not going to put paid dollars into it, you kind of have to be okay with that because it doesn't support the outcome that we're after. Yep. And I think that's where, especially at small companies, you and myself included working at a small company, we want to do everything. We want to run every promotion and we want to, we want to, everything is, everything is good in the world. If you can do it, great. If you can't, you got to think about the outcome and then all your resources, all your energy, everything deploys to that. But even, Um, even like getting granular on the outcome, right? Like we want to have a great launch of our new SKU. What does that mean? Like how do you want, do you want to move velocity? Right. Do you want to just raise awareness? Because if it's just awareness, that's a different set of tactics and toolkits and investments than it is to drive velocity. Right. And that's where I think Chobani really taught me this really well in that, you know, there are, there are real, you're playing with real expectations, real money, real shelf space, real retailers. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, agencies get it, but they don't, they don't fully have the context and they aren't fully in the decision-making of the process. Right where I can tell you, I came from the agency side. I love those big, crazy ideas. I thought they were yeah. so fun. Agencies are really good at big brand awareness. Right, <laughs> but also like, little hey, brands, we, yeah. you know, and I mean, Miguel Leal, who I quote all the time, he's the, you know, he was the CMO at Cholula and now he runs uh, Somos. He has his own brand with Daniel from Kind, but he said, you know, and I was like sweating over marketing at some point, he was like, you don't have the ACV right? Like you're, you know, and for emerging brands listening who don't know that acronym, it's Annual just, you're not, volume. you're not in enough <laughs> stores, you're not in enough slots. So for you to spend money on a big, cool brand idea, but you're not a direct to consumer brand, you know, at least the 95% of you isn't a direct consu- to consumer brand and you don't have enough stores, then you're going to basically have this thing out there in the ethos. And even if you build all this brand awareness, you're going to leave people really frustrated because they're not going to be able to find your product and they're going to give up after like one try, basically. Yep. Or be really disappointed in you and clog your customer service team. Yeah. So I think outcome-based planning is really, it's a general tool. It's a general tool everyone should be using when building a business and, and sure. optimizing a business, but especially in marketing, because there's just so much you can do now. Yep. And if you don't know what the outcome is that you want to see happen, and you aren't, to your point, very specific and clear on that, um, it becomes really challenging. So, you know, it's, if I look back at like, you know, C-suite presentations we would give or, you know, things we would talk about when we're selling in campaigns, I was talking to someone on my team now about this, giving him examples. And I went back, I was like, oh my God, every second slide of a presentation I have, here are the outcomes that we are focused on. Yeah. Here are the outcomes that we are focused on. Because again, it sets context for the, um, it sets context for the challenge. And, and I'm a marketer too. I say all the time, it awareness is not an outcome. Awareness is a byproduct of anything you do. Oh, wow. So be really specific in the outcome. Do you need to see this, this many dollars? Do you need to see this ROAS? Do you need to see this efficacy or this efficiency on your investment. Um, so do you have, you know, so for example, you know, getting nitty gritty, we have, a, 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 I mean, Courtney has created an air table, like no air table has ever been created. And it's basically every account trade spend, every social channel, every, just every email, SMS, like everything that, you know, partnerships, brand placements, all of it. And what we're now trying to do is kind of create, like, how do we evaluate if this is successful or not? Like, what are Mm -hmm. we even trying to get to? And I think that's to your point, like, even just the process of going through and identifying the outcomes, you know, specifically, you know, we have our priorities for the year as a business, but then taking those priorities and saying, okay, what are the specific marketing outcomes that ladder to those priorities. And then, I mean- What are those business outcomes that the marketing outcomes are supporting? Right. Because it's not just about the marketing outcomes. If marketers did marketing for themselves, we would be in a very happy place all the time. Right, because everything would but, just um, be beautiful and you'd have like- It's about trucks. the business outcomes. Yeah, right. Yep. Yeah, so when, I, when I'm saying outcome-based planning, I'm saying business outcome-based planning. Right. What is the what is the thing you see happen for the company to survive, to thrive, to grow, right. to to- do whatever. And then what's the marketing strategy to help 
contribute to that outcome. So now I'm going to ask another very specific question. (laughs) So, you know, one of the things that we feel really proud of is that, you know, last year, as I think a lot of, I mean, I don't know, a lot of brands in my category or categories adjacent to mine, like we had, I don't know, fewer brand like buyer meetings, you know, mm-hmm. there were, there were no resets in our category. They didn't, they didn't have people to actually put things on the shelf. And there was so much, you know, reorganization at grocery stores. Like any review that we did have was either like completely rescheduled for this year or like kick the can completely. So we had growth, you know, we didn't, have, you know, 500% growth like the year before, but we had growth, but it was primarily from the stores that we're in. So we feel really good about that because it's organic and it's repeat and whatnot. And I, you know, I feel like as an emerging brand, like you hear all the time, it's not about the number of doors. It's not about the number of doors. It's about repeat, 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 you know, velocity growth in the stores that you're in. How would you take that as an outcome? I want to double my Whole Foods velocities for this SKU. Like, how would you turn that into outcome-based planning? Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Well, I, I would align on that outcome that you just said. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say, okay, if the outcome here is you want to drive velocities of, you said Whole Foods, right? Yeah. Yep. So um, drive the drive the velocity of SKUs A, B, C, and D at Whole mm-hmm. Foods stores. As a marketer who doesn't own it, because a D to C answer to that question is very different than a CPG. Right, right. <laughs> My CEO loves to say, like, it's the DDC of the CPG of the... Right, of the exactly. Effort, you know. <laughs> right. Um, here's how I would approach it. Yeah. yeah, here's how I would approach it. So I'd say, okay, here's the velocity expectations. Help me understand what that velocity is going to mean from, okay, if I get two more points of velocity, three more points of velocity, how many dollars is that equating to? What's the mm-hmm. flow through? All that good stuff. But, oh, my God, there's a huge opportunity if we get the velocities up. Yeah. And then I'd be like, hey, if we just get someone to buy, and this is getting really specific now, but mm-hmm. if we get someone no, like to it. buy any skew, A, B, C, or D, one more time more frequently than they are now in Mm -hmm. a four-week period or a six-week period, that could result in $100,000 on the top. Right. It's like, oh my God, okay, let's figure that out. And so Mm -hmm. you start to understand like, what's your threshold for investment? What's your threshold for um, tactics you're going to look at? But listen, you don't control that audience. You don't control that shelf. You don't control that store. Right. So the first thing I would do is I would take that exact question. I would walk into Whole Foods and I would say, Whole Foods, I want to drive more velocity. I want to do it with you. What do you recommend we do? What programs do you have? How can I be invested in it? What can I do with you to right. can I bring recipes back? Can I do demos in the store? Yeah. Because your your question is about driving velocities of specific SKUs at a specific store, which means you have a specific audience in mind. Mm-hmm. That's where I would say, okay, look, you want, I know you want to drive velocity and I know you want to drive frequency. I'm not going to spend any time building recipes for Instagram organic posting because I have no idea who those are hitting. I don't know where they shop. I don't know what they do. Right. Let me build a recipe plan, take it to Whole Foods and say, hey, Whole Foods, in your 400 doors that we're in, let's get behind this and figure out something to do. Right. Or, hey, Whole Foods, I've been in your stores a lot and I see you doing a lot of prepared meals. How do I get my sauces as samples into those boxes? Do you need another size? What do you need? Because I want that trial. I want that trial because it leads to the velocity. Yeah. So it's it's that analysis of the landscape and that that, um, discipline to say like, do this, don't do this. But I think um, when you have, when you have specific questions or outcomes like that, that are tied to a specific audience, you got to play the the game where that audience is. Got to go to the audience. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes total sense. And And that's where I think smaller brands get a little caught up because they're like, well, I don't know how to talk to Whole Foods. I don't know how to talk to a shopper marketer. Right. I don't know. how. It's like, you know, put marketing, never use the word marketing again. You're just solving a problem. And I think, you know, to your point, I talk about this a lot because I have a lot of D to C founder friends who I think were led to believe that if they build enough awareness and they have enough of an email list, um, regardless of the engagement of that email list, right? But they have subscribers and they have, then they could kind of go to Whole Foods or Sprouts or Albertsons and be like, look, see, you you know, but I don't think anyone told them what the game that they're actually playing is. And I mean, probably even something like a Magnolia, right? You have this, mm-hmm. this incredibly, I mean, it's, I, I don't, you know, the number, the percentage of Americans that have heard of the brand, but even with all that brand awareness, 
when you go into grocery stores, your package has to be a particular way. You're, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're not, they're not paying you, you know, <laughs> to come into their store. Like, you know, you're paying them, you know, and there's, yeah. there's this whole other, I mean, we, I have, we have a funny, we know people mutually who like have had to adjust from being like a nationally recognized and beloved brand into marketing at grocery stores and being like a little bit humbled by the occasion. Um, Which I guess goes into the second question, which is, you know, when you think about, you know, it sounds to me like people who are very experienced in the world of marketing really do distinguish product marketing from brand awareness. And I, I guess I'm kind of, is that, do you do that? Like, do you think of it as like, is there, do you think of like, cause I don't, I mean, it, it used to be called shopper marketing. Is it still called shopper marketing now? It, you know, whatever it is, it's kind of included in trade spend yep. versus, Growth marketing, versus marketing. marketing. Yeah. So, you know, tell me a little bit about how you think about being in stores versus, you know, just sort of outside of stores. And then if you can go one further, can you talk a little bit about sort of life cycle marketing and how you Mm -hmm. think about that? Yeah, definitely. So they're all actually, in my mind, interconnected. And yes, I'm sure. What I like to do as a marketer when I approach sort of the brand versus product growth performance is I actually like to compartmentalize them. And I like to give myself the responsibility to make sure that they're connected because <laughs> right. it actually makes decision-making really easy when you look at it on, a, on paper, on a plan, because I'm, I'm also a very visual like learner and visual sort of problem solver. Yeah. And so what, what I think the challenge is, is one brand and performance are tied to, primarily performance is tied to investment. You are spending money to reach a specific person with a specific message at a specific time in a way that you think will be motivating to them whether that is to acquire them, for them to click a button, for them to redeem an Ibotta coupon, whatever it is. Brand, and that happens in the moment, right? That, that's very short term. Right. Brand outcomes are much more about the long term. What are you trying to do consistently? What are you trying to do with passion and commitment? The feeling you're trying to evoke. The feeling you're trying yeah. to create over time. And, and you have to recognize that you're playing that long game. Yeah. And I always say this, I used to buy, I used to spend 20, 30, $40 million a quarter in TV. And I would say, and we decided, and it was always like, oh, TV is a big brand channel, helps build your brand. I'm like, no, 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 no. 30 second television commercials are great brand builders because you can't buy a lot of them and they're really long and people pay attention to them. 15 second commercials are performance ads. They are about driving someone in the short term to go buy something off the shelf. They are not one in the same, even though you say TV and their commercials and they're fun, they're not one in the same. Yeah, And so the more that you grow as a brand and the more that you spend time learning your channels and how your investments work and your audiences are, I really do believe brand performance mean different things to every type of company yep. and every type that of makes brand. total um, sense. And that's how life cycle comes in, right? Yeah. Life cycle to me is both a brand and performance depending on the outcome that I want. And what I mean by that is I want to, you know, we just launched a new SKU, a new variety pack, um, banana pudding. Mm. We dropped one email. We had our so what was our so far best sales of best sales week of uh, the new the new year the new fiscal year. Yeah, and it was oh not only did we raise awareness that we have this new product within a category, but we also sold a lot of it in a very short mm-hmm. period of time. Huh? This lifecycle marketing thing might be a little niche for us. <laughs> so right. I said, how do we get more segmented? How can we get more intelligent? How can we start to learn more about that? We have a great partner who we work with from a from a lifecycle side on especially on the email side. Um, where that one activation has now led us down like a rabbit hole of, a, a you know, Learnings. a branch tree of a thousand options. Yeah. And, but it's, again, it's that brand and performance middle ground. So I, I think, I don't know, I'm a marketer that believes like a brand isn't built through television ads and right. a brand isn't built through advertising. A brand is built through consistent messaging, a key point of view, um, being committed to the actions that you're taking as a company that's all brand, but that is as much marketing as is everything else as a company. It's right. this conversation I'm having with you. It's seeing the sauces in the store. It's knowing the story of how this thing came to be. It is talking to your team and meeting your team. It's all of those pieces are, are brand, right. right? And I think a lot of marketers will say, well, brand is 
out of home and brand is TV and brand is imagery and brand is content. And it's like, it is, but it also isn't. Right. Um, because it's kind of I, like the outer, it's almost like if you picture the globe, it's like the inner core and all the way, like the atmosphere it's yep. but like everything in between is everything is in between. everything else. Yeah. I, yeah. I always say that as a, as a brand, if, if you're a small brand and you need to invest in something for brand, invest in your people. Yeah. Because your brand is that, is that broker, is that sales team that's meeting with that buyer. That is better than any TV commercial you could run. Yep. And they are your brand. Speaking, <laughs> let's, let's be speaking of, of hiring again, going back to like this team. So, you know, I think you and I have talked about like, you know, my team and I talk about like the weeble wobble organizational chart where Courtney is now at this point, I think managing like 12 people, agencies, freelancers, and like outsource service providers. Like we're, we're starting to bring things in house gradually because people on my team like Maddie have been like, Hey, I totally get this now. And now I can do it. And we don't need to be paying this agency because now I can, this is what I need. And this is who we need to hire for me to be able to crush this, which is like a dream for any founder to just have someone on your team, just do that. You know, um, that said, you know, like I was saying earlier, there is sort of a stage, I think, of every emerging brand where you, you, at least for me, I feel like we're, you know, forging a new category. We're doing something that no one's really done. We're kind of trying to marry kind of like the D to C body with the CPG brain, or maybe the D to C brain with the CPG body. I don't know which one it is, but it's one of them, you know, and we need, we do need someone who has done this before. Like, I think, because if we keep hiring really smart, young, trainable people, at some point, we just were all of the more senior people are kind of managing too many people. And we, I think, and maybe you'll tell me, no, Allie, not at all. But it feels to me like we need someone who's done this, maybe not in food, but who's done some sort of data, maybe not driven, but, you know, data led or whatever it was that Peter said, data informed. Because at some point, there's going to be a much bigger budget than there is now. And we do need to know what that return is, or at least try to measure stuff in some way. Yeah, but the dashboards do that for you now. <laughs> okay. So, it's, yeah, um, tell me. Yeah, so I guess here's here's if this was let's say I was like your your HR partner right now. I was sort of like okay, I want you to be my HR to, partner always. I would love to. You know, I, in my in my next life, I'm gonna be a recruiter. Yeah, I think that's my calling. It's my next life to be a recruiter. I think so too. Um, so here's you what I would say: an MLM, right? Like, yeah. don't, you want to, right? <laughs> not for a not for an mlm yet yeah. until i find that right thing you could until be a recruiter who does marketing <laughs> for mlms yeah or like you know like a headhunter right. like that sort of yeah no it's great think, so um, tell me tell me pl- plug in who i need and what i need and what where are they now and what what am i looking for well one one piece of um just i'll put it into the universe for you is it's really hard to trust on building for potential in that skill or hiring for potential in that skill, but it really is the best investment in the long term, especially yeah. at growing companies. Yeah. Um, because potential, if skill. they have the potential, they will learn the but skill. Here's the thing, Eddie, I get that intuitively and yet I can't train them in that skill. Ah, so I have well, these, these brilliant people <laughs> who are like yearning to be mentored and taught and there's no one, we don't know how to teach them because we don't know it. So here's, here's, if you have a piece of paper in front of you, draw this out. I am drawing, I'm writing and I'm drawing. The, draw a big T on your paper. Okay. So T top with a line going down. So it forms like a capitalized T. Hire people that are T structures. Okay. And what I mean by that is the, the breadth of someone shows how intelligent they are, how capable they are, how, what their, what their potential is. So you probably have a lot of people that can, that can stack every single person on my team. Right. Yeah. What you just said, though, you said, do I need a D to C person? Do I need a CPG person? Like, I don't, it's one or the other. It is, that is your depth. 
And I have hired and kept and retained and grown the best people. I can tell you every single one was a T-structure. Every single one had the, the breadth and the, and the potential to, to grow and to take on new challenges. But I hired everybody specifically because of one of their depths and what the company needed in the near term. Right. Got it. And okay. so, so I'll give you a couple examples. Yeah, has yeah. Have one particular part of this that they are particularly excellent at, at. Yep. Yep. superpower at. So I'll give you two examples of people I just hired. So over the summer, I brought on a marketing manager, um, sort of the first dedicated marketing strategy manager at the company that they'll see. And not that I had to make the case, but I, I proactively presented it this way. And I said, right. look, his skill set, his superpower is media investment. Yeah. We, in the next 18 months, are going to be spending millions of dollars in media investment. We need someone that lives and breathes this. But why I like him more than the other candidates is he's got that T. Because mm-hmm. now I've got him doing some a little bit of demand planning. I've got him doing a little bit of forecasting. I've got him doing um, analytics. Like, it's... You know, it's all skills that come off of that depth, that 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 superpower that he has, but it's incredibly important and incredibly powerful. Yep. I just hired this this woman from one of the big, you Maybe know, like hundred legacy food brands, uh-huh. and we're bringing her on board because her design aesthetic and her design skill set is so specific to where yep. we're going to be growing in the next eighteen months. Yeah. Is she going to be able to do retail signage? Absolutely. Is right. she going to be able to do brand creative and advertising? Absolutely. Yeah. But I know, I know as the leader, I know as the team builder, I know I need, if, if there's going to be one thing in 18 months, that's going to hold us back. It's this, I need the person that can do that first. Yeah. And so that, that is the really important exercise as a hiring manager to go through is to say, if you could hire for one skill set, not right. a lot, just one skill set, who am I bringing on board and investing in to get the most out of it and to give them the best chance to succeed? Right. And that goes back to lesson number one, which is what is the outcome? Right. Right. Even with people, even with people, you got to think about the outcome. Yeah, no. I'll play it back to you. What I heard, you just said, I have all these intelligent people that don't know how to, it sounds like I'm going for a job here today. No, (laughs) I mean, you know, you you just, you just articulate, you said, I have all these really intelligent people that want to be taught, that want to be pushed, but don't have, you know, we can't do it. I can't do it. Sounds like maybe your T structure is someone that is proven sort of team builder or successor in CPG. Maybe they're not the expert on like anything specific in it. Yeah. But they know enough so that they pull the whole team forward with them. Yep. 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 If I, that's the skill that you can't live without for the next 18 months, hire the person that has that. I love that. And actually it's so interesting because I've kind of gotten that feeling a little bit. Okay. But I, all right. So we have like, uh, we've actually, we're over, but I'm asking Armin if we can have a couple more minutes because I just have like really two questions that can you can kind of compress into one but okay if you were starting tomorrow you have this and you you don't have a magnolia and you don't have millions of dollars you're just starting an emerging brand you don't have a ton of bandwidth everyone's doing 85,000 things in terms of marketing what would you say are like the key things to get right or to ask yourself or like sit down with a whiteboard and go like, Mm -hmm. where would you start? I would start with the, the first thing I would ask myself and I would force myself to answer is not how much money do I want to spend, but how much money am I willing to spend? Cause there are two, there are two different outcomes there. Cause once you know your capacity to spend, even if it's $10,000, $15,000, at least you have a framework and a point of reference for how to make decisions. Okay. Yep. Too often small brands just say, well, I do everything if I could. So, well, you can't. Right. So what, what are you willing to do or what are you willing to put into marketing to see the outcome that you, and then be able to decide on the outcome and what you need to see happen. Um, that's sort of, the, that's sort of the first thing that yep. is, is mission critical. That's at the top. Two, two is, if it's not working, stop doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you as a founder, you as the leader have to decide what is working, what's not working. But I can tell you too many times I've seen amazing companies that have so much potential in front of them get caught up in like 50 likes on an Instagram post here, 25 yeah. likes on an Instagram post here. And they just seem to be throwing more into it and trying to figure it out. And it's like, no, you have a great brand. 
You're a great company. You're getting great distribution. You have great opportunity. You have dollars to invest. Why are you worried about your own Instagram post? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In the grand scheme of things, no one's going to remember it. Don't worry right. about it. Right. <laughs> um, right. And so I'd say like that, that conversation or that feeling has to sort of be articulated and, and figured out um, as you're growing. And then I think the third thing is just know where you're not willing to sacrifice um, in marketing. Right. Know what, know what, find, know what you find to be really important. If you are all about experiential and you, and you came up through, you know, people trying your product and get, and this was very, this is like the Chobani playbook. We never, obviously until COVID, even in COVID, we did some sampling, some experiential things. We were so much about grassroots. It stayed with us as we grew to a $2 billion company. Mm -hmm. I mean, we would do backpack school drives. We would do pop-up events at our cafe, things that large companies would just kind of look at and be like, Zeus, not worth the squeeze. Right. But for us and who we were as a company and a brand, it was absolutely worth it. Yeah. And so I think from a marketing perspective, you you have to know not only how much you're willing to spend and how much you're willing not to spend to get what you want. Right. But you also have to be willing to say, what am I not willing to give up in terms of my identity, my DNA, who I am yeah. as a company, as a brand, as a leader, and make sure that that's communicated. Oh, my gosh. I feel amazing. How do you feel? <laughs> <laughs> I love this stuff. You can tell I start know. talking faster. I get more no, excited. No, I know. Like I mean, my heart's pounding. I'm like sweating a little bit. I'm really, this This was like, this was this everything. This is why I teach. I know, man. And this is why, you know, with the trucks and the supply chain and the bill back. Oh, it's a mess. Things, it's it's a mess all a freaking mess out there. And yet I love this job because like you said, it go, it, everything ties back to just like these fundamental, you're just tearing away at nonsense. You're just ripping away at everything and getting to the core of something all the time. And it's just really great you know, fun for my brain. Um, yeah. and, and honestly, I, don't, I don't entertain nonsense very often. It's no. hard for me to, it's hard for me to sit in a room and say, all right, guys, like, what do you want to do? I'm like, no, what are we doing? Let's right. go. And like forcing <laughs> yourself to get to the core of something, even if you don't necessarily want to is just, it's like the best life lesson ever. You know, As I'm turning 50 in a couple months and I think everyone who listens to this regularly is going to start to hear me kind of like start going through this like midlife, you know, not crisis, but just sort of like, here's what I've learned in my, you know, middle age. So, but it's true. I mean, just, just tear it away. What are you trying to do? What are you trying to say? What outcome are you trying to achieve? And if you can just keep that going whether it's hiring or managing or, or marketing or building, whatever, like this is just amazing. Eddie, just be, be yeah. so direct with yourself. Don't sugarcoat it. Yeah. If all you want to do is make a ton of money, say that and then make the decisions to make that happen. Yeah. You can make a lot of money and do no marketing. Yeah. It's totally okay. It yeah. can happen. Yeah. <laughs> it's, totally. You just gotta, you gotta be honest with yourself and, and, be direct enough with yourself to get all the noise out of the way or as much of the noise as yeah. out of the way as you can, because that is where you're laser focused on the outcome, yeah. laser focused on what you want to achieve. And Hey, you might get it tomorrow. You might get it in two years, but at least you know what you're after. Yeah. Amazing. Ah, oh, Eddie. Thank you. Thank you so Thank much you for coming for on me. the show. No, this was amazing. And happy Valentine's Day, man. Happy Valentine's Day to you too. I'm so glad yeah. I spent it with you. I know. <laughs> talking about this. I know. Oh, what a great, yeah. Um, and I don't need to tell anyone, I didn't even put anything about Magnolia in the intro because it's not like they're in whatever, because everyone knows Magnolia. So uh, good luck, enjoy, and thank you so much for coming. Thanks for having me. Armin, thank you for letting me go a little bit over. This was just too good and I just needed a little bit more Eddie. Um, and listeners, as always, thank you so much for listening. I've been getting such fun. I have to tell you, it does make me feel really good to hear that this is helpful and you're sending it to your teams and you're binging it, all of that. Um, not obviously for my own sake, but just to know that something is helping because this is really freaking hard and we all need all the help we can get. So I will not be back next week with another episode of In the Sauce because I'm gonna be on a vacation, but I will be back the week after. And um, thanks for listening. Have a great week. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. 
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.